would come upon me and speak through me tonight everything that needs to be spoken lord this is you know delivering the word of god is an awesome responsibility and lord i pray that this will go out everything will be accomplished through it that you will to be done it will truly be as the holy spirit speaks through me living seeds of truth that's sown into people's lives good fertile soil and the holy spirit to prepare hearts and minds and lives and help us right now to get locked in and focused to give our best ear and our full attention, our focus to the word and what God is speaking to us, that there's not going to be distractions or hindrances, but rather we'll receive the word tonight and the Holy Spirit water that seed in our lives and it will take root, grow and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains until the Lord comes. And we agree together, we bind the enemy. He will not steal the seed. He's not going to distract or hinder. We bind in Jesus' name right now. Lord, let the winds of your spirit carry this everywhere it's supposed to go. And Lord, let your angels watch over your word that it will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. And Lord, that you confirm your word. And we thank you. We commit this time to you. And again, we pray, let everything be accomplished through this, this sermon that your will to be done. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to deal with the lampstand tonight, the mysteries of the lampstand. There's a lot to this. I think you guys will really enjoy this. I mean, you guys like the deeper stuff. I do too. All right. Well, you'll like this. So here's what we'll do. When you just start out, I guess, with the tabernacle, let's go just briefly on a journey. When you were to enter the tabernacle, you could only enter one gate on the east side, okay, which represents the four gospels. It represents Jesus, that he is the gate in. There's no other way. Amen. That's it. So when you go in, the first thing you're going to see is the, the altar where the animals were sacrificed called the bronze altar. And then you saw the laver, which is where you'd wash, the priests would wash their hands and feet. It was the washing of the water of the word of God. You see a lot of blood and water in the outer court. But then you would go past the first veil into the holy place. And when you went into the holy place, it was a large rectangle and on your right, you would see the table of showbread where there was wine and there was different stacks of unleavened bread. And it was, it was there as um, called the lechem panim, which means the bread of faces because it had to do with a face-to-face face, face -face encounter with the Lord. It represents the communion table. But to the left, you would see the lampstand, which is what I'm talking about, okay? And then directly in front of you, you would see the golden altar of incense. And then the golden altar of incense was before the actual veil to the Holy of Holies. And beyond that, when you would leave the holy place and go into the Holy of Holies, it was just a square area, maybe the size of a large um, elevator. It was not big at all. Had the Ark of the Covenant in it, and that was where the glory of God would dwell. So when you look at this, I'm going to deal with the lampstand because there's a lot of mysterious revelation in the lampstand that's really amazing. So let me at least open with one scripture here in Colossians 2.16. The Apostle Paul said this, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, which was the turn of the Hebrew month, Okay. or a sabbath day these are a shadow of things that were to come the reality however is found in christ 
All right, so let me explain this for a moment because there's, there's different groups of thought here. Some people feel that the Old Testament is just to be thrown away in the trash bin and all we have is the new. Okay, um, that is false. Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law, not to throw it away, not to do away with it. And so you have to take it from that perspective. And so as I'm coming through, let me, let me show you what I mean. What Israel had in the natural, we have in the spiritual. And so some of you, you may want to take notes tonight. This is really interesting. It's really deep. And I'm going to come back to this picture. So the picture at the top of the front page, just keep in mind that you'll want to keep referring back to that as we go. But what Israel had in the natural, we now have the reality in Christ, the fullness in him. So, for example, if you were an artist and you just simply drew something on a piece of paper, it's two-dimensional. But somebody that was a really good artist, they could go in and they could start making shadows around that picture and they could make the thing look like 3D. They could make it look three-dimensional. You see what I mean? And when you start understanding the Old Testament from a New Testament mind, you understand it properly, it brings out those shadows. It brings depth. You see things about what we have in Christ that you've never seen before. And so here's some examples of what Israel had in the natural. We now, we now have in the spiritual. Number one, Israel had a physical, natural tabernacle and later became a temple. It had the outer court, the holy place, the holy of holies. They had something physically there. But the apostle Paul said, now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Does this make sense? And so what Israel had in the natural, you look at the tabernacle, you, you look at the temple and you study it. But God's wanting you to see that that's a type and shadow. And it has significance. But it's been fulfilled in Christ and the reality now that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And our physical bodies are like the outer court. Your soul is like the holy place. And your spirit is like the holy of holies. And it brings a real depth of understanding. That in your spirit where the holy of holies was, that's where the ark of God was, remember? The ark of the covenant. And in the same way, the glory was in that holy of holies with that ark. In the same way, the Spirit of God dwells in your spirit, man. I could go on, but let me give you another example here. The ark of God is now in us. And so that ark that's in your, uh, the Holy Spirit in your spirit, man, inside of the ark of God was Aaron's rod that budded, was the Ten Commandments that were written in stone, and there was a jar of manna. Remember that? So what Israel had in the natural, we now have in the spiritual. Let me show you what I mean. Hebrews 10, 16, it says that God has written his word upon our hearts. So where does the Holy Spirit dwell? In our spirit, in the Holy of Holies, within us. And so just as in that Ark of the Covenant, there were two tablets of stone that were written, the Ten Commandments, they had that in the natural. But now God said in Hebrews 10, 16, I have written my word in your heart. So Israel had something in the natural, but we have the fullness, we have the reality in Christ that now the word of God is literally written within us. 
The Bible says in the Old Covenant, you had to be circumcised in the flesh to be a part of God's covenant people. And Israel always had those that even though maybe they weren't born Jewish, that they were called proselytes, that they would get circumcised and they would come into the faith and, and they would become a part of the commonwealth of Israel. But that was the circumcision was in the flesh. But now the Bible says in Romans 2.29 that now the circumcision is in the heart. So what Israel had in the natural, it was the covenant. You, you had to have that to be in covenant. But now the Lord Jesus says that unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The true born-again experience is a circumcision of the heart. And what Israel had in the natural, they literally had natural physical manna. But now we have the reality in Christ, the spiritual, that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I've come down from heaven. And he talked about eat my flesh and drink my blood. He was talking about the communion table. And so what Israel had in the natural, we have now the reality, the fullness in Christ. And the manna also speaks of the daily word of God as God as we fellowship with him and he speaks to us his word and teaches us things on a daily basis. Israel fought physical, real battles with swords and spears. I mean, they fought real, literal battles. But now, we're told that our warfare is not of this world. We don't use carnal weapons. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. But he said our battle is against princes and powers. Wickedness in the heavenlies. And it's a wrestling and it's a spiritual battle with spiritual weapons. So what you saw Israel doing in the natural, we now have in the spiritual. We have the reality in Christ. Also you saw that Israel was so set apart from other nations God told them probably the greatest thing that distinguished them from other nations was that they ate a kosher diet. But God told them, you're going to wear your beard differently. You're going, to, you're going to have an outer garment that would have tassels on it. And you're going to look different and you're going to act different. You're a, a people that are set apart unto me to be different from the other nations around you. And in the same way, now... We have to be careful because we have the re reality in Christ. We have to be careful what we're feeding on spiritually. Because if you're going to go around feeding on a bunch of garbage spiritually, that it's going to affect you. It's going to hurt you. It's going to defile you. It's going to begin to oppress your life. And just like Israel had to be a distinguished people, we now, having the reality in Christ, we are different than the world. People in the world should look at true Christians and say, there really is something different about them. So what Israel had in the natural, we have in the spiritual. And these are the seven. I'm going to deal with a lot of sevens tonight, okay? Those are the seven areas that what Israel had in the natural, we have in the spiritual. Those are seven areas there. We are now the temple. The ark of God is in us, the holy of holies, our spirit. The word of God is written on the tables of our heart. We have a circumcision of a new birth of the heart. The, the manna from heaven, uh, the spiritual battles, 
the kosher diet fulfilled in Christ, all this is fulfilled in him. Because when you look at the lampstand, I'm going to get to this here in a moment, it's really neat, but there's seven branches. So that's why I'm dealing with sevens, okay? There are seven places that Jesus shed his blood before he died. And there's a few other places I'm going to mention after his death, or at least connected to the death. But before Jesus died, there were seven places. The first place was in the Garden of Gethsemane when he sweated blood on his face, but also they... they came and they grabbed him and they pulled his beard ripped his beard out but he was bleeding on his face area his countenance okay the second place that Jesus shed his blood was they put a crown of thorns on his head and they hit those crown of thorns they beat him into his head I mean he was bleeding probably pretty profusely from his head this the third place Jesus shed his blood was at the whipping post and if you guys have seen the Passion of the Christ, you get an idea of how brutal that really was. The fourth and fifth place is in his hands. He was pierced in both hands. And the fifth and sixth place, I'm sorry, the sixth and seventh place was both of his feet. So these were the seven places Jesus shed blood before he died. And when he shed blood out of his face, you know, I'm sure that, you know, they were punching him. I'm sure his nose was bleeding. His mouth was bleeding. They ripped his beard out. So he's bleeding from there. And he was already sweating drops of blood. But the reason why blood was coming out of his countenance area is because when the guard, in the garden, let's get a little deep for a moment. The Bible says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which I'll get to. And it says, God said, let there be light. But then later you read that he created the sun, moon, and stars. Or at least they were, you know, came on or whatever. Because some people believe they were already there. But anyway, they were there and came on later. So what is this light? The light was the glory of the Lord. And the Bible says in Psalms, you'd have to look it up. I think it's Psalms 102, somewhere around there. But it says that God wraps himself with light as a garment. And when God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, he said he created man in his image. And this is pretty deep, but you can look all this up. Before Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and sinned, the Bible says that they were naked and knew no shame. But the word for naked was a word arom, A-R-O-M. And it actually means in the Hebrew partially nude. But after they sinned, in Genesis 3, it says that they were naked and they knew it. And they went and hid. And the word naked there is the word in Hebrew, E-R-O-M, it's erom, and it means completely nude. And so you're sitting here thinking, well, what in the world happened? I mean, they were naked before, they're naked later, but here's what happened. All have sinned and fall short of the glory. So when God created Adam and Eve, even though they were physically naked as far as clothing went, they had an envelopment of God's glory. And I guarantee you, just like Moses went up and spent time with the Lord, and he came down and his face was shining, that Adam and Eve walked in a realm where the glory of God enveloped them. And they were like a shining off of them. And when they sinned, that glory lifted. And so when Jesus died, and the first place he shed his blood was on his countenance, what God is saying to us is that Jesus paid for by his blood that the glory of God can come back to us again. 
and we can have his glorious presence in our lives. How many have felt the glory of God where you felt a weighty presence? I have many times. You feel that weighty presence. You know why? Because Jesus shed his blood. And the blood, whenever um, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year, he'd have to burn incense and fill that place up with that smoke, holy smoke, right? And he would come back out and he would take that blood but he had to go into that holy of holies some some believe that he worshiped at the veil and was supernaturally transported in that could have happened but he took that that blood in a bowl and he took his finger and he sprinkled that blood on the ark seven times and when that blood was there the glory of god came on that blood and the glory lit that place up what i'm trying to say is this where the blood of jesus is and where the blood of jesus is honored and reverenced where the blood is the glory can come and jesus paid for that blood out of his face for that glory of god to come again and i'm going to tell you something in another realm this is similar to this but i've seen people that were really hardcore sinners and i saw pictures of them and then i saw them after they were truly saved and their countenances look completely different. I've seen times where they look like, honestly, two different people to me. Have you ever seen that? The second place was the crown of thorns. When Adam and Eve fell, Adam was literally created in the image of God. I don't think that any of us can really understand what God invested in Adam. He was brilliant. He knew everything that, that God wanted him to know. I mean, the man was created to be like a king over the earth. He knew everything about zoology. He knew everything he needed to know. Brilliant. Without any sin, um, there, there was no insecurity about him. And he carried himself. I'm sure he, he was uh, extremely handsome physically. But God created him in the image of God. But when Adam sinned, the Bible says that God told Adam no longer will the earth be fruitful for you because before that all Adam did was just go through and kind of till the garden and pull a weed here and there and just you know it was enjoyable labor it was something God made for him but now the Lord is saying no longer will the earth just do that for you now it's going to be by the sweat of your brow that you'll eat and the ground will produce what thorns and thistles and so we see that poverty, we see that struggle. But when Jesus took, what, what did God tell Adam? By the sweat of your brow. When Jesus took thorns on his brow and blood was shed from his brow, God was saying, I'm breaking the power of that curse. And then now you can have supernatural provision in your life. And it's not going to be have to be like you're working against a curse and that you're struggling and that things are going to be difficult for you. But rather, now the power of poverty is broken so that there can be a blessing on your life financially. The whipping post, when Jesus took stripes on his back, his back was plowed open. It was not just like taking a belt. I mean, it, these cat and nine tails had... Um, sharp objects in them and it was literally plowed open but jesus paid for our healing and we're familiar with that by his stripes you were healed at calvary so jesus took it in his back 
And then whenever he was placed on the cross and he died, sickness was paid for so that we could have healing today. It's in the atonement. The other two places Jesus shed blood was in his hands. There's something about the hands that's really powerful. The Bible says that there's some kind of an authority and a power that we can have in our hands. So just for a moment, look at your hands. <laughs> there's nothing that seems remotely impressive about this, right? In the natural. But there's an authority and a power that can be in your hands. Because the Bible says in Mark 16, verse I think 16 through 19, that you'll lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. So there's a power. There can be a transference of the anointing. Remember the early church? It said they laid hands on people and they, was, they were filled and baptized in the Holy Spirit. And of course, laying hands in the demonic fleeing. This was paid for at Calvary because Jesus took those uh, spikes in his hands and blood was shed out of his hands so that we can have an authority and a power in our hands to destroy the works of the devil. In the, the next two places, the last two before Jesus died that he uh, shed blood was in his feet. And I don't know if you get a chance, I cannot get off on this too much, but if you get a chance to look at this picture that's back here behind Ed on the wall. But actually that picture is a closer depiction of what the crucifixion probably would have looked like. Jesus, it was, it was something where people that were crucified died naked. It was shameful. Um, if you look at it, it's something that's not really high up in the air. Um, also, his feet were probably nailed from the sides, as it shows on there. Um, I can't get into it too much, but there's people that did research on what crucifixions look like, and that's more of what most of them look like. And so when Jesus died on the cross, it was a very painful, horrible way to die. But he took those spikes in his feet. And I'm going to tell you something. There is an authority in our walk with God. I don't understand it. But God told Abraham, he said, every place the soles of your feet walk, I will give you. And he had Abraham walking the length and breadth of Canaan. Remember that? And he told Joshua the same thing. And I'll tell you something else. When Jesus, here's a, here's a cool story. When Jesus was in the boat, and he's got his disciples with him, and here they are going across the sea to the Gadarenes, and as soon as Jesus gets out of the boat, and his feet touch the land, all of a sudden, this guy that's out in the cemetery just starts blood, these blood-curdling screams and comes running out. He's naked. He's got chains probably dangling from him. And he's running out there screaming, what do you want with us, Jesus, the Son of God? But what happened? As soon as Jesus' feet touched that soil, something manifested in the region. There's an authority in your feet. There's an authority. I have felt many times that when people were getting free in their praise and worship and began to dance, that something broke in the spirit realm. There's something about the feet that there's an authority in your walk that the places you go where your feet walk, you're releasing the kingdom of God. And that was paid for at Calvary. Now, after Jesus died, he was hanging there. He said, it is finished. Three in the afternoon. 
the time of the evening sacrifice, which was moved back to noon, now it was the Passover sacrifice, right at the same moment that the high priest was standing there, they sacrificed the Passover lamb, and he says, Negmar, he says, it is finished. At the same time that's going on, Jesus is on Calvary, on the cross, rather, and he says, it is finished, and he gave up the ghost. Now, when he died, the other two were still alive, and Psalms said that there would be no bones broken in Jesus' body. The other two, they broke their legs. And the reason why they did this, I'll explain it here in a moment. So, I mean, obviously, they could die early, but they didn't want to leave him overnight, which I'll get back to. But Jesus was on the cross. He'd already died. And so they go up to Jesus. This is interesting. And this guy takes a spear, and they shove it into his side right under his ribs. And we know the story. Blood and water came out. So now, Jesus, this is the first place that blood came out after Jesus died. This is the eighth place. Eight is the number of new beginnings. Now, this is really interesting. What happens, well, let's start here. In the outer court of the tabernacle, what do you see all over the outer court? Blood and water. What do you see when a woman gives birth to a baby? What is there? Blood and water. Jesus was paying with blood and water for there to be children of God that are born, so to speak, into the kingdom. Also, here's an interesting thing. Jesus also paid for this, that Adam, whenever it was time for Adam to have a bride, God put Adam to sleep, and what happened? He took a rib out of his side. And Jesus was paying for a bride. Isn't that awesome? The ninth place that I want to mention nine is the number of judgment Jesus became a curse by hanging on the tree now here's what was interesting in the Old Testament time the Bible says cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree and Joshua would go into Canaan and he would fight these military battles and he would you know kill some of the kings and here's what they did they would take and hang some of these people on a tree because it was written under the law cursed are those that are hung on a tree but they knew also under law that they could not leave them on the tree throughout the night that they had to take them down at sunset because God said, I don't want you to defile the land. And that's why Jesus hung on what Galatians 3.13 says that Christ became a curse for us for it's written, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree redeeming us so that the blessings given Abraham come on us. He was becoming a curse for you hanging on that tree and when he died it was a picture and type of Joshua and those different people putting somebody on a tree it was a dead body hanging on a tree and it was cursed but it couldn't stay there overnight and Jesus in the same way now had allowed his body to die hanging on a tree becoming a curse for us you know what Jesus paid for by hanging on that tree that you can be delivered from everything Satan has ever had in your life in the 10th place, and this is interesting because Jesus fulfills this, the day of atonement, that whenever Jesus died, he had to ascend. Remember, I can't get into this too long. It take, you know, take too much time. But Jesus had to ascend, and he told Mary whenever she saw him raised from the dead, 
He told Mary, he said, don't touch me because I haven't ascended yet. And the reason why is there was some kind of a secret ascension we don't know a lot about. Well, we do know this. The first place that there was sin that was recorded in heaven was when pride was found in Lucifer and then he led a rebellion. And what did Lucifer seem to be in charge of the praise and worship? And see, at the Day of Atonement, the high priest had to go in and there was a golden altar where incense was burned every day. Every, nine o'clock every morning, three o'clock in the evening, they would burn incense and they would pray. The morning and evening sacrifice. But once a year on the Day of Atonement, the priest had to go in and put blood on the horns of that altar that was in the holy place and consecrate it again. And what happened when Jesus ascended was now he went up as our great high priest he entered into the most holy place and there was some kind of an atonement some kind of a cleansing from that original rebellion that happened under lucifer and then we know he went down into the underworld and took the keys of death hell and the grave from satan he preached to the spirits that were there and then he raised from the dead on the third day so those are the ten places now i'm going to give you this when Jesus, here's how Jesus fulfilled the Day of Atonement. When Jesus was taken up before the people, remember on the Day of Atonement, I've got to go quick through this, but you remember there were two goats, and they would cast lots, and the, one of the goats was to the Lord, and so that was the goat that was taken, and there would be like a scarlet thread around its neck, and it was taken to the altar, and that goat was going to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. The other goat was called Azazel, or Azazel, and it was the scapegoat. And the high priest would lay his hands on the head of that goat. Poor goat, never did anything to anybody. Anyway, and transfer all the sins of the nation onto that goat. And after they sacrificed this goat, they sent that other one out. And that guy had one job, and he better do it right. It was to take that goat out of the camp. I mean, far away, because we do not want to see that goat wander back in this camp, right? And they would mark it by tying like a red thread around his horn. And so the reason they did that is because we wander back in, you know. It's like, get away from the goat. I can just see people running, right? But it never happened as far as we know. But the goat was taken out in the wilderness. And history records, it's not in the Bible, but they'd make sure it was shoved off a ledge or something and die. But once that that happened, you know, you would, that would be bad if that was your one job and the goat came back, right? But the goat, once the goat died, both goats died, they also tied a scarlet thread around the tabernacle or the temple door. And this is in Jewish history, and it really did happen. That every year at Day of Atonement, that, that scarlet thread would turn white. It was supernatural. And that's why Isaiah said, though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be made white as snow. You know when it stopped? Around 30 AD, 33 AD, right in that time frame when Jesus died, it stopped doing that. And that's in secular Jewish history, and they don't know why because the priesthood changed but here's how jesus fulfills the day of atonement jesus was taken up before the people and so was another guy by the name of barabbas you guys remember him did you know that actually his name was this yeshua bar abbas yeshua son of abbas all right so you have these two guys up there one of them yeshua bar abbas who was a thief and an evil man. And then you have Yeshua bar Yosef. Jesus, the son of Joseph. So you have two that are there to choose from, just like the two goats. 
the people were crying out, saying, Crucify Yeshua bar Yosef. Let Barabbas go. And so Pilate understood the Old Testament. He understood the law. And he knew that in their Old Testament law, if, they, if there was a dead body found in a field, an innocent man died, that they had to measure the closest town. The elders of that town, this is how serious God takes innocent blood, guys. So you're talking about the shedding of innocent blood like abortion. I'm telling you, God takes this a lot more serious than what people think. They had to measure the closest town. The elders of that town had to go to the dead body where there was innocent blood shed, and they had to wash their hands over running water, and they had to lay an axe to a, a heifer and kill it and shed its blood and say, Lord, they had to say this, Lord, we do not know who shed this innocent blood. We are innocent of this man's innocent blood. And God would pardon the city so that they didn't come under judgment. And Pilate knew the Bible. And that's why whenever Pilate's standing there and you've got Barabbas who is now the scapegoat and Jesus who is unto the Lord who's going to be sacrificed, here's Pilate knowing in, in his mind he knows that Jesus did no wrong and that by killing him and crucifying him that they were shedding innocent blood. And he's probably thinking to himself, what is wrong with you? I even know the scriptures that says don't shed innocent blood and how serious God takes that. And so he says, get me some running water. And he stands up in front of the people and they pour the water over his hands and he says, I am innocent of this man's blood. And so the people said, well, let his blood be on us and on our children. And they didn't mean to, but they brought a curse on themselves that day. And sure enough, because of the curse they brought on themselves by shedding innocent blood, God allowed their temple to be destroyed and them scattered among the nations. But Jesus that day fulfilled the day of atonement because Barabbas was the scapegoat and went off that day, Yeshua bar Abbas. But yet the true Yeshua, the Messiah, he was unto the Lord and he was the one that went on the cross and gave his life. And then ultimately went into heaven, the most holy place, to atone there. Just like the Day of Atonement. Isn't that awesome? So let me give you a couple more things before I close out. The sevenfold revelations of the lampstand. Boy, there's a lot to this. Y'all getting something out of this? The Bible says, make a lampstand of pure gold. Hammer it out. It's based in shaft. Make it, make it flower-like. Cups, buds, and blossoms of one piece of them. All right. If you look back at the picture, you keep referring back to the picture, okay? You'll see that each branch had a cup, a bud, and a blossom that went up the branch. And if you add all those up, all seven branches, you get a total of 66 of those. You know what God was doing? God was predicting that there would be 66 books in your Bible. Do you realize how awesome that is? God was saying to us there would be a day when everything's in its fullness that you're going to have a Bible that has 66 books in it. You know what else is awesome? If you take that middle branch and count it and then go to the right, you have a total of 39 of those buds. And that's there's 39 books of the Old Testament. If you look to the left and just count the three branches, there's 27 and there's 27 books in the New Testament. And so God was predicting through the lampstand that there would be those 66 books and that it would be a light 
to us today? How many agree that it is? Also, not only does the lampstand speak of the Word of God, but it also speaks of the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible calls the Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation the seven spirits of God, but there's not seven Holy Spirits. There's a sevenfold manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And He's called the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of wisdom, revelation, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Seven. And when the Holy Spirit comes in His fullness, like that, He's coming as what's called the Spirit of Elijah. But the Bible predicted through this lampstand that there would come a time when there would be a church and there would be a bride and they would have the word of God. It would be a 66 book Bible and they would have the sevenfold manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And God would give us through the day of Pentecost his word and his spirit. Oh, that was good. Now, come on, guys. That's that's awesome. It's so quiet in here. Hopefully you're just absorbing it. And here's something else that's awesome. I'll come back to some of this. But if you look at that picture of the lampstand, you see to the left, you see three branches. And it speaks of Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Jesus fulfilled those with his death, burial, and resurrection. But that middle branch, you know what that middle branch is called? I'm going to start dealing with this now. That middle branch is called the shamus branch, the servant branch. That was the one that from that shamus branch, all the other fire came from that branch. And that branch, that middle piece represents Pentecost. And then the other three on the other side represent um, trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and tabernacles. Those are the feasts that haven't been fulfilled yet. But God was saying right there in that menorah that the first three feasts would be fulfilled and we're living in that servant branch time, that Pentecost, where the fire of God. Jesus is that servant branch. He said, I am the branch, or I'm the vine, you're the branches. Everything was engrafted into him. He was the centerpiece. And from that shamus branch, all the other fire came. And once Jesus died on the cross, he told them, he said, man, I long to cast fire on the earth. How I wish it were already kindled. And then he ascended. He said, wait for the promise of the Father. They go into Jerusalem. When the day of Pentecost fully came, which is called Shavuot in Hebrew, when that came, the fire of God fell. And there appeared tongues of fire over them. So you see in that the feast days. So here I'm going to go through this quickly now. I've already talked about the roots. That root system, the base, is the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus said about Abraham, he saw my day. You've got to understand, these people had a revelation of the coming Messiah. And they believed in him. They died in faith. They were looking for his coming. And so that root system, if you will, was the foundation of the faith of Abraham. And out of that root system, out of that faith, came a branch a servant branch the messiah and he's that centerpiece there okay and if you look to the right of the menorah you'll see that there's three branches that are that are um, engrafted into it and what that is before jesus came on the cross there was two jews for every one gentile but after he came in the fullness of time that servant branch you looked on the left side now and there's three branches there's two gentiles for every jew that has accepted the lord but yet, 
all together it's engrafted into him the one who all things are in he is the messiah the source of life the source of that fire the source of everything that we need now here's something interesting if you look at the top i have some writing up there and there's seven branches total these are the the first words that are in the torah outside of the ten commandments that were given on stone when it, god gave the torah through moses these were the first words of our bible that was given to humanity and it was this in hebrew bereshit bara elohim aleftav hashamayim vehat haaretz and here's what it means bereshit in the beginning created god the heavens and the earth shamayim is heavens with the, its plural it's interesting because the Aleph Tav was never translated into English. So you see these other words are translated, but the Aleph Tav. So what in the world is the Aleph Tav? If you look at the Hebrew alphabet, the first letter is Aleph. And the symbol for it is an ox. Like a sacrifice. If you look at the last letter, the 22nd letter, it's called the Tav. And the symbol for the Tav is a cross to this day. Or maybe an X, but it's a cross. Isn't that awesome? So you know what it's saying here? I'm going to show you something you've probably never seen. But Jesus, in the book of Revelation, what does it say about Jesus? Now, it's talking about the Greek. It says he's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. What it's saying here is the same exact thing in Hebrew. He says, I am the Aleph and I am the Tav. I'm the beginning and the end. Now there's a scripture in Revelation that says Christ was crucified from the foundations of the world. So here's the most interesting thing of all. When Moses gets this Torah and he writes this in Hebrew, he writes, Bereshit bara Elohim Aleph Tav, Hashamim Vehat Haaretz, he writes that out. And he puts that Aleph Tav there. You know what it's prophesying to us today? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the beginning, God created the Aleph Tav. Who is that? It's speaking of Jesus. He's the Alpha, the, the Omega. The one who would be the sacrifice on the cross. The, the one who was predicted to be crucified from the foundations of the world. You can see some of this as well. I got, I'm just going to go quickly through this, and then we're going to start closing this out. But the historical timeline, there's seven, if you look at it from the menorah perspective, I'm not talking about necessarily dispensations and all that, but from Adam to Noah would be the first branch. Did you know that Adam was alive all the way till the days of Noah? He lived 900 years. Noah would have been the first generation that did not have the opportunity to talk to Adam personally. Adam was alive all through the days of Enoch and everything. He had a righteous son named Seth. He had a righteous line. Adam, I'm sure, was trying to lead people to God and in the ways of God. But when he died, Noah's generation 
you know, it was a horrible, wicked generation. We know the story. But from Adam to Noah was like the first branch. From Noah to Abraham, you had the Noahide laws. You can look that up. That's the second branch. Then from Abraham to the Exodus, you have the age, the time of the patriarchs. That's the third. But you know what the fourth one is? It is the age of Torah from the time of Moses to the time Jesus came. That's that middle branch. Then you have the early church. Then you have the last days or the church age, the dark ages, and then you have the last days. So you see kind of a timeline, if you will, of the, uh, represented on the menorah from the beginning to the end. You have the feast days, which I've already covered, that which has already been fulfilled and that which will be fulfilled. Then you have a revival timeline. And this is what I want to stop here for a moment. God seemed to follow a similar pattern here because in the days of Martin Luther, the days of the Reformation, God restored back to the church the revelation that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's not through works, but it's through faith. And that revelation came to Martin Luther. And Martin Luther began to preach the blood and that people had to accept Christ on a personal level. They had to put their faith in Christ. There had to be a born-again experience. And that was something that was completely lost for the most part. God had always had a remnant in the earth. There were groups that the Catholic Church hunted down and burned alive at the stake, imprisoned, etc., because they believed this. But by and large, it was something that the Catholic Church had extinguished. But God used Martin Luther in that day, and it's representative on this lampstand, if you will, of the first move of God toward the last days where he instituted, like Passover, he brought back a revelation of the blood. The second branch was the first awakening under Wesley in the mid to late 1700s. Wesley was known for being somebody that preached holiness. He preached having a set-apart life, getting the sin out of your life, and how to practically live righteous before the Lord. And it was like the unleavened bread. Then the days, the mid to late 1800s, you had the days of Charles Finney. People that know about Finney, they said that he had such an anointing and such a, such a resurrection power as he preached that it was like the air was electric. People would actually fall from their pew on the ground in a fetal position under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He operated in a resurrection power, and it's like first fruits being raised from the dead. Then you had the next one in the, in the feast is Pentecost. And we had the great Azusa Street revival, which you guys are familiar with. And God brought back the baptism and the Holy Spirit back to the church. Then you have trumpets. The day of trumpets is known as a day of judgment. Yom Din in Hebrew, it's a day of judgment. And the trumpets is like a wake-up call. When you hear the shofars blast, it's like a wake-up call. Okay, and what happened was you had the days in the 80s and the early 90s with the Argentine revival and what God began to do through Rodney Howard Brown and many others, that revival started breaking out and we started slipping into the last day of revival. It was like trumpets. It was a wake-up call to the church people realizing the lateness of the hour people started getting on fire for god it was a stirring and it was the time of the trumpets and then you have brownsville in the mid to late 90s um, and beyond but it was a time of repentance what did it is the interesting thing in the series of this brownsville is represented here by the day of atonement 
What's the Day of Atonement about? It's about blood being applied to the mercy seat. Those that know anything about Brownsville, what was sung night after night after night after night by Charity James come running to the mercy seat. It was like the Day of Atonement, so to speak, where there was a call to repent and get things right with God, the soon coming of the Lord. And I still hear Steve Hill on my mind, you know, keep your head up and your feet moving. Don't allow yourself to get, you know, caught up with this world. I'm coming for a pilgrim people. It was like the Day of Atonement. But you know what's about to happen? That seventh branch with the greatest revival represented with tabernacles, the great celebration, the greatest move of God that we've ever seen is about to happen. I really believe that. And it's going to usher in the coming of the Lord. This coming revival that we're about to see is going to sweep the world. It's going to be a move of God that sweeps in an end-time harvest that, that um, gets a bride ready for his coming. So you see all these sevens with the, with the lampstand. A lot of sevens. When the Holy Spirit comes in his fullness, the Spirit of the Lord, wisdom, revelation, counsel, might knowledge, and fear of the Lord, when he comes in his, that, that fullness, he's coming as the Spirit of Elijah, great revival. And the thing about the Hebrew roots that we learn is that the tabernacle was a place of continual worship and prayer. It was a place where where continually blood was being applied, but people were in continual prayer and worship. And it became a place where God's glory tabernacled in an awesome way. All right, so I'm going to close out with this. How many of you guys like teaching about the end times? So here's three sevens for you. I'm talking about all these different sevens, historic, revival timelines, all that's there, okay? The seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls is all I'm going to deal with. You have more you can look into on your own. But there's predicted in the book of Revelation that there would be a total of 21 of these judgments. Traditionally, what's believed is that the Antichrist will rise to power and make a peace treaty with Israel. And when he does, all these se- they'll enter into the days of the tribulation and all 21 of these judgments will happen in a seven-year period. And that may be what happens. But I'm just going to give you my personal view as to what might happen. All right, so right now we're living in what's called the the beginning of sorrows, the beginning of birth pains. At a time Matthew 24 predicted, remember this? He said the end is yet to come, but you're going to see the beginning of birth pains, rumors of wars. You're going to see uh, pestilences and famines and earthquakes and all these different things. And he started talking about these beginning of sorrows. And when you look at these seals, you see that there's something connected there. Uh, hopefully I'll show you some things you haven't seen before. And when you look at the seals, you see, look at two, three, and four. You see there's a red horse, a black horse, and a pale horse. Now all of us know that this is a spiritual horse. How many of you guys know that we're not going to be watching Fox News, right? (laughs) And there's some black horse with a creepy rider, you know, come trotting along. And they're sitting there filming this going, who's this guy, you know? It's not not going to be in the natural. This is a spiritual horse. I'm saying that for a reason. Traditionally, this white horse rider is the Antichrist. 
And I believe that it is connected to the rise of the Antichrist, I have no doubt. But in context, we see that the red horse, the black horse, and the pale horse are all spiritual horses. And I believe that in context, the first rider would also be a spiritual horse, not necessarily natural. What I tend to believe is this. I tend to believe these seals could be before the tribulation time and connected to the, um, what we're going through today, honestly. We, did you know that it is possible that some of these seals have already been opened right now? It is possible. Okay, look at them and read the Bible and look at what's going on in the world. This is how close we are to the coming of the Lord, that it is possible that some of these seals have already been popped in our, in our generation. The rider of the white horse could be, since the other horses are spiritual, a spirit. I personally believe that this has to do with the Antichrist spirit that is loosed in the world. And it is very prevalent right now. When you see the Antichrist spirit today, what you're seeing is you're seeing a lot of dead religion, people falling away from the faith. You're seeing a lot of confusion, doctrines of demons and seducing spirits where people are now blending in like Islam and Christianity together, getting Chrislam. All kinds of confusion where people are accepting things like there's multiple ways to God and this whole coexist mentality. Do you see what I'm saying? This is all the work of an antichrist spirit that's bringing a lot of confusion. And I believe personally that this rider of the white horse could be already on the move and it's an antichrist spirit that's preparing the way for the rise of the antichrist. Possibly that seal could be popped. Another one is, the next seal is the red horse, war and bloodshed. We're seeing a lot of wars and rumors of wars. Jesus predicted that. And there's an uneasiness. How many of you guys would say that this generation right now, that there's a greater uneasiness than there was maybe 50 years ago? I mean, there's always been an uneasiness out there, I guess, but, but there's something where you can just tell that at any given time, it's almost like, man, there's such a stirring that you're wondering, could there even be like another world war breakout? I mean, it's just such a tension. And it revolves around Israel, this little bee nation that just wants to mind its own business. Leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. But, the, you know, the enemy's not going to do that. The next one is seal number three, the black horse, famine. We're seeing a lot of famine. The f number four, the pale horse, pestilences and death. We're seeing so much in the last several decades you're seeing so much with AIDS and so many different epidemics and and such a scare out there there's a lot of pestilences that's out there the fifth is the souls under the altar the martyrs we're seeing a lot of martyrdom you know it's making the news now but there's been over the last several decades there's been an increase in martyrdom the only reason now that it's getting news attention is because of ISIS but this has been going on for some time And then a great earthquake. And then silence. And the interesting thing is, you know, traditionally, they, it could be that way. It could be after the rapture, the tribulation starts, and the seals pop. It could be that way. But in my personal opinion, I think that these seals are already starting to be popped. 
And it's connected to what Jesus said, the beginning of sorrows. And we're moving headlong, I mean fast, into end time prophecy being fulfilled. And the next judgments you see is the trumpets. And what marks the rapture of the remnant bride? There's going to be a group of people, guys, I'm telling you, over the next, you know, I'm just guessing, but it seems to me like over the next 15 years or so. But you're looking at a group of people where God is going to pour out his spirit in such a way. And God is going to get us ready. He's cleansing our garments. He's, he's, he's causing us to be deeply consecrated. We're going to be in the fires of revival. We're going to be wise virgins with extra oil. But not everybody that goes to church is that way. Not everybody that professes Christianity lives like that. And so you've got to understand there's a remnant. God's always had a remnant that have not bowed their knee to Baal. You hear what I'm saying? And there's a remnant in the earth. And when it comes time, and I believe maybe these seals have been popped, there's been so much stirred up, but yet at the end of that, this, there's a catching away of that bride as they meet their bridegroom in the air. And it's going to start these trumpet judgments. What marks the rapture of the church? The blast of the shofar. And this is going to be the trumpet judgments will be in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. There's going to be 144,000 Jewish people that accept Christ as their Messiah. They're going to be marked and they're going to be incredible evangelists. And they're going to be preaching Jesus all through the Middle East and probably all over the world. 144,000 is a lot of people if they're really radical and sold out like the Apostle Paul and they will be. And this is going to be going on there in the first three and a half years of the tribulation because God has caught away his remnant bride and they're at the marriage supper and he's not going to be without a witness. But the Antichrist is going to institute a, a system to where you can't buy or sell without taking his mark and there's going to be a real persecution and a martyrdom against Christians for those first three and a half years. And people that are left behind and people that are getting saved are going to give their life for the gospel most likely most of them but while that's going on and judgments coming uh, rather um, there's persecution against christians there's also judgment coming down on the earth because god is looking down and he's seeing how people are martyring his children and he's going to send the first trumpet hell fire and blood the second trumpet a burning mountain which is probably a huge meteor the third will be wormwood where the waters become bitter and undrinkable, which could be connected to the, the huge uh, meteorite that hits the earth. And then number four, the sun diminished. That again could be connected with that thing striking the earth. If I remember correctly, it's a meteorite in the air, but when it hits the earth, it's a meteor. But if you have this huge, massive rock, like it says here, like a burning mountain strike the earth, it's going to affect things. So it could be water becomes undrinkable. There's a, a cloud that goes, ascends into uh, the atmosphere that begins to diminish the sun. There's going to be some kind of a creepy locusts that are going to be released out of the abyss. You got to read about these things. These are demons, man. They're going to be loosed on the earth. That's trumpet number five okay and this thing is going to be so creepy and evil that god calls it also not only the fifth trumpet he calls it the first whoa <laughs> right and so these things are going to be released on the earth and they're going to be stinging people man and when people get stung by these things it's going to be tormenting 
Then the sixth trumpet is the plague of horsemen, and it's the second woe. And then the seventh is a declaration about Christ in his reign. Now, you have, you're in the three and a half years, you're in the middle of the tribulation. So what's going to happen in the middle is the Antichrist is now going to betray Israel. Y'all ready? So let me back up and explain it. Jesus told the people of Israel, you're not going to see me again until you say Baruch Haba Beshem Adonai, which means blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You're not going to see me again. He said, you, receive, you won't receive me when I come in my name, but you'll receive another when he comes in his name. Most likely Israel is going to face in the days to come more war. And because of war, Israel is going to become war weary, terrorism weary. And they're going to be looking for some kind of a savior. Eventually, they're going to rebuild the temple with the mindset, well, if we can get the sacrifices going again and we can atone for our sins through the blood of animals and we can get that, that shaking out cloud, that glory back, if we can do this, then like in the days of Solomon, maybe we can have peace around us. But war is going to continue. In the Gog War, where possibly Psalm 83, the people around them invade. But then, all of a sudden, one day, you've got Russia, you've got Iran, you've got Turkey, you've got possibly part of Eastern Europe and Northern Africa and others that are going to gather together, come down on Israel in the Gog War, and Israel's going to feel like we don't have a friend in the world. And they're going to be weary. And there's going to come an individual, the Bible calls him the Antichrist, he's going to be a counterfeit Messiah. And Israel is gladly going to sign a peace treaty with him. But when they do, what they don't realize is, is they're accepting a counterfeit Messiah and they're making a pact with the devil. And as soon as they do that, it's going to start right then, the seven-year tribulation called the days of Jacob's trouble. And I just explained the first three and a half years. Now, the Antichrist made a peace treaty pact. So halfway through the tribulation, he's already instituted, you've got to have my mark to bind sell. He's already persecuted Christians and had them imprisoned and killed. He turns his back on, I can't get into this, it would confuse people, but he turns his back on the whore of Babylon as well. He doesn't need that anymore. Now he's going to set himself in the temple and declare himself to be God. He's going to create some kind of a statue. This statue is going to be able to speak. Okay, once again, you're talking about creepy, right? I mean, this stuff goes on right now in, in the Catholic Church. There's statues that can cry and bleed and, and different things. And people go there and they can touch it and they get some kind of weird healing. It's, it's demonic. But anyway, this Antichrist is going to set himself to, up to be God, like an ancient Nebuchadnezzar or whatever. And he's going to demand that people worship him and worship his statue. How well do you think that's going to go? in Israel so the Jewish people are going to be outraged and they're going to be shouting this is an abomination and when they refuse to bow down and worship the Antichrist and refuse to bow down to his image the Antichrist is going to release his military to begin to slaughter the Jewish people and the Bible predicts that two-thirds of them will die one-third will be supernaturally protected and, and swept away to a place probably Petra and they're going to be protected by the Lord. It's going to be really supernatural. 
And so the Antichrist is going to start slaughtering these Jews. Now, the midway through, God's going to start responding to that. And the bowls of God's wrath are going to come down. Christians have already been martyred for the most part. Now the Jews are being slaughtered. And now it's time for God's wrath to come down. The last three and a half years, there's going to be the boils. I've never had a boil. But I know what it is. And I wouldn't want a bunch of boils. Okay? There's going to be boils breaking out. Now here's the interesting thing about this. When I read these plagues here or these judgments, who does this remind you of? This reminds you of Moses in Egypt. You know what's cool? Once the 144,000 are dead the first three and a half years, God is going to have two witnesses in Israel, in Jerusalem. It's going to be Moses and it's going to be Elijah. That's why it says that out of their mouths will come fire. What was Elijah known for? Fire, calling down fire from heaven, right? And what was Moses known for right here? There's going to be boils. Remember when Moses turned the water to blood? There's going to be the sea turned to blood, bowl number two. Bowl number three, the rivers turned to blood. Bowl number four, great heat. Bowl number five, darkness. There was great darkness in Egypt, remember? Bowl number six, the Euphrates dries up. And bowl number seven, hail. So these two witnesses are going to be probably connected to these judgments. But at some point in time, God's going to allow the two witnesses to be killed and people are going to rejoice because they're tired of hearing them. And they're tired of hearing what they have to say. And who knows, maybe they are announcing, hey, guess what? Because you reject God in his ways, boils are about to break out. Maybe they're announcing these judgments. And so people are associating them with the judgments. I don't know. But they're going to be there and they're going to be a thorn in the side of the Antichrist. And they're going to be a thorn in the side of humanity because they don't want to repent. And so they're going to kill them. And after a few days, they're going to raise from the dead and float up and it's going to scare them half to death. But this is how bad these, these judgments are, the bold judgments. The last one, hell. How many of you guys have seen hell the size of a baseball before? I've seen that. My parents experienced that. It went through the roof, and I mean, really did a number, okay? I, I mentioned this, and both my parents were like, oh, man, you know. All right, that's baseball size. The size of this hail, according to the Bible, is going to be basketball size. This is going to be the wrath of God, okay? But here's the good news. The bride of Christ is not appointed to wrath. This isn't sent for us. All right, so at the end of that time, you have the seven bowls. Now you're at the end of the seven-year tribulation. The Antichrist is now enraged. His, just like Pharaoh in Egypt, he's looking at, Pharaoh's looking at his economy crushed, annihilated by the God of Moses. You killed all my animals. You destroyed all my crops. All the fish are dead because you turned the, the Nile to blood. I mean, you've wiped out our economy. And in the same way, these judgments from God are going to so strike the earth that it's going to crush the economy that the Antichrist has, you know, had or whatever. And the Antichrist is going to be so enraged at the God of Abraham and so enraged at Israel that the, literally it says all the nations of the earth are going to gather to little Israel and they're going to try to wipe out Israel. 
And when the Jewish people see all of this, those that, the one-third that remain alive, they're going to be crying out to God. And they're going to be saying in Hebrew, send Yeshua, which means salvation. God, send us salvation. Send Yeshua. Hoshienu, come save us. And they're going to be crying out for Yeshua to come, not even really realizing what they're saying. And when they cry out for him to come, God is going to send Jesus and he's going to come on a white horse and all of us with him. He's going to split the eastern sky. And this time he's going to come in as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He came the first time as Yeshua ben Yosef, the suffering savior. This time he's coming, Yeshua ben David, the son of David. And he's going to have the Antichrist and the false prophet grabbed. They're going to be thrown alive in the lake of fire. Hello. He's going to have, this, he's going to have Satan bound. He's going to be bound under the earth. All of the military that's come against Israel, he's going to slaughter them. He's going to come in and he's going to put his feet on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is going to split in two. He's going to walk into the temple area. And he's going to take over. And the nations of the earth will come under his sovereign rule for a thousand years. And then at the end of that thousand years, after Jesus is at thousand... Think about how long a thousand years is. America is only a couple hundred years old, Okay. A thousand years, Jesus is going to be ruling and reigning, and he's going to be cleansing the earth and getting things ready, all that's going to happen, okay? At the very end of that, the devil will be loose for a very short time to do like a final sifting of those that are going to rebel against God, and they're all going to be dead. But here's the great thing. At the end of the thousand-year reign, the Bible says that the earth will be um, cleansed with a purifying fire, a fervent heat. Peter predicted would purge the earth and purge the atmosphere it's a spiritual cleansing and God's going to purge the whole earth with fire and this is at the end of Jesus's reign and the new Jerusalem will come down and sit in the earth it's going to be 1500 miles square and tall and the Bible says that God the father will come down and dwell among man and the dwelling of God will be with man forever man with God the fullness of all things. Satan and his kingdom is in the lake of fire. All the rebels, lake of fire. The earth has been cleansed. Now, God has come down to dwell with us forever. Isn't that awesome? And that's what the Bible says about the last day. So I gave you the mystery of the lampstand tonight. All these different sevens. And here's the last one. What I just mentioned. There's 6,000 years from Adam till now. When Christ comes, that's going to be the seventh thousandth year. It's going to be a Sabbath. It's going to be a thousand year rest in him. Isn't that awesome? So that's the last seven I'll share. I share a lot of sevens tonight. But Lord, we thank you for your word. We love your word. Hopefully you guys learned something tonight. But Lord, we thank you for the meat of your word. We love your word. Seal this night and open our eyes to be able to see your truth and know your word. We love your word and thank you for your word. And Lord, again, I pray that everything be accomplished through this time in the word that you will be done in Jesus' name. Let's go ahead and shut down recordings. If you would, just play that CD for a moment. And listen, I want y'all just to close your eyes where you're at for a second because here's what's on my heart tonight. I know something from revival that God responds to a desperate, hungry cry. And I remember how hungry and desperate Steve Hill was. I remember talking with Steve. 
and I was able to spend some time with him, which I'll always cherish. I'm so thankful for that time. But he was so desperately hungry for a touch from God. He wasn't dried up on the vine, you know, he wasn't spiritually dead. He was hungry. And whenever Steve had that hunger in him, he went down to the Argentine revival. And he saw how powerfully God was moving through Carlos Anacondia. And he was so hungry that he said he went out of his way to get Carlos to pray for him. And, and he was hit by the power and landed in a bunch of mud. He said he didn't care. He was just so hungry to get a touch from God. Whenever he heard how powerfully God began to move back in the early, early 90s, okay, through Benny Hinn, he was so hungry. Him and a couple buddies came in from Argentina. They were missionaries there. They came in, and he knew somebody. He kind of worked it out to where he could meet Benny in a, like a Holiday Inn Express. They were, he was staying there and get prayer. But he was so desperate. He had to have a touch from God. And I heard Benny Hinn talking about that meeting. He said, I remember that. He said, I just got out of a very difficult meeting. He said, the last thing on my mind was praying for people. But he said, these guys came and they said, we've got to get prayer. We came all the way from Argentina. He said, he just lifted his hands and said, Lord, whatever you have. And he said, these guys were slammed with the power of God. You know what it was? It was the desperate hunger in Steve for more of the Lord. It wasn't Benny. Benny was in a bad mood. It was the hunger. Are y'all seeing where I'm going with this? And then Steve tells the story how he went to England. And he went upstairs and he was reading Time Magazine. And Time Magazine was talking about how there was lines like a mile long out of Holy Trinity Brompton because the Toronto Revival had broken out. And Randy Clark had went to Holy Trinity Brompton and preached there and was praying for people. And the Holy Spirit started moving real powerfully and people were hungry. And people started lining up in London a mile long at an Anglican church. You don't ever hear about that. And Steve was reading and he was blown away and, and, and he, you know, tears started coming to his eyes and he asked the people who are staying with him, man, where is this happening? And, and they told him, they said, Steve, this is our church. I'll line you up a meeting with our pastor, you know. The pastor's name was Sandy Miller. And Steve goes to have this meeting. He goes in, he said, there were people all over the floor. And he's stepping over bodies everywhere. And he said, man, in England, these British people, they don't do stuff like this. You know, they're real just uh, uptight or whatever about things like that. But Steve got to Sandy Miller and, and Sandy Miller said, oh, man, I know we had a meeting. I'm so sorry, but look what happened. And Steve said, I don't need to talk with you so much as just pray for me. He was so hungry. And Sandy Miller prayed for him, just barely touched him. And Steve said, I went out hard under the power. He said, I felt like rivers of the Holy Spirit flowing through me. And the Spirit of God really came upon Steve. And when he came back, that's what sparked the Brownsville revival was these encounters that he had had before. Now, I'm going to tell you something. There has to be a desperate hunger in people. Too many times I think that, that we all get into the busyness of life. And, and going to work every day and doing things. And if we're not careful, we just simply just go to church because we're supposed to go. And, it, you know, and it's, it's like the hunger is gone. Where's the hunger? 
And I'll tell you what, if we're not careful, Satan can start stealing that desperate hunger. I can safely say by the grace of God, every time I come to church here, I'm hungry for God to do something. And I remember when I had a meeting with Steve. And I told him how God touched me at Brownsville back in 96. And I said, you know, God put such a hunger in me. And I said, I don't know if that hunger will ever die or not. I just made that statement when I was talking about it. And Steve said, no, no. He said, it won't. He said, that hunger won't die. And he was right. It never has. It never died in him. I remember Leonard Ravenhill saying, and you guys know this from those CDs, you know, he said, if God, if the fire of God died in you, he said, the problem isn't God. God doesn't die. If the fire died down, it's not like God died in you. You can't blame God for that. What I felt tonight during the altar time was that God is wanting to really stir back up a hunger in all of us that needs to abide. There needs to be a hunger for His Word. I marvel sometimes at how people just want, well, let's just get in and out of here, get a little word and go home. There's no hunger for the Word. Man, but other people that are hungry for the Word, you start preaching and they just latch hold. They're so hungry for the Word of God. They're so hungry in worship. They're so focused on the Lord, they're just lost in worship because they're so hungry to have a time with Him in His presence. In the altar time, you can always tell the difference between somebody that's desperately hungry and somebody that's just there. Because the desperate hunger will cause God to really move on that person. And that's the thing. I felt God putting on my heart, are we hungry like never before for more of Him? Are we desperately hungry? So I want us to pray for a few minutes where you're at. And if you've, if you've allowed, just pray about this. Lord, if I've allowed any lukewarmness, any complacency, any spiritual dryness to come, Lord, I ask your forgiveness. Lord, put a hunger in me like I've never had before. Stir up a fire in me. And I'm just going to stop for a minute. I'm going get the music to be changed but I want you to make an altar where you are and really pray about hunger Lord forgive us we, we want to be so hungry and on fire for God and we're going to pray for people that want prayer and Lord I pray because of the hunger that you're going to birth in people Lord that there'll be an awesome awesome touch tonight because God responds to hunger